You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. But today, we are doing a standalone, and it's basically coming out of this idea that there are certain things at the beginning of the year that as a pastor and as a shepherd that I just have been praying about and then observing amongst the body of Christ called New Life. Uh, And I just feel in my heart that you need to hear this. And what I told you last week was kind of like this sales pitch uh, when we talked from the book of Philippians that there's this secret to contentment. If you didn't listen, you can go listen online at your leisure. And uh, being that I'm still in this infomercial mode as a pastor this week, because everyone likes a secret ingredient, don't they? That thing that no one else knows that's gonna change their life. We're gonna stay on that theme, specifically within the topic of marriage. Just one week on marriage, and it is the secret to what I would tell you is a healthy marriage. And so I come at you today preaching lots of marriage sermons. I had someone in the youth group tell me this week, you talk about marriage too much. I said, you're out of the youth group. Get out of here. Um, but if I was to take one thing, because I only have one week, and boil it down over 20 years of personal experience myself or 21 years of being with the same person, I would give you this sermon all day long, every day of the week. This is absolutely the secret. And so what I'd ask from you is that you pay attention. If you're single, this could really help you. This could change your life. And what I wrote down this morning was, there is one thing that drives everything. And you're like, well, how could you have so much of a concrete opinion on such a broad topic? I just do, and I'm right, and if you don't agree with me, right, maybe you're right too, but probably not. So uh, I'm gonna tell you stuff that I know, that I'm still learning, but that I know that maybe you know, maybe you don't, but if you don't know, you really need to know. And I would imagine that a lot of married people in church this morning are gonna be shaking their head in agreement because it's just so practical. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But I wanna open with this quote from Rick Warren that I shared with our leadership team this morning. And in fact, I think Celebrate Recovery uses this statement. And we're gonna be digging into some Celebrate Recovery stuff in a few weeks. And so I'll start with it now. I was listening to a podcast that Pastor Chuck sent to me uh, with Rick Warren. And it was on leadership and and life and and what he's learned and pain that he's dealt with. And he made this statement that I thought was perfect for your future mistakes if you're still single. Are you ready? If you don't write it down, then you don't care about your future. All right? Rick Warren says this, pain is inevitable in life, but misery is optional. So I'm going to say that again. Pain is inevitable But misery is what? Misery is optional. Pain is inevitable. In fact, if you don't deal with pain, you're probably just not living appropriately and putting yourself out there. Pain is inevitable. We live in a broken world, but misery is optional. And I think that perfectly applies to the topic I wanna cover today. Here is the secret ingredient, the one thing that drives everything. I promise you on this one, the key ingredient to having a Christ-centered marriage where it actually outlasts those around you, and it's not just living in a place where it's okay and you're tolerating, but where you're actually having the capacity in your marriage to put it on display, to show Christ is real in your life, and to thrive in it, 
This is the one thing. The quality of your friendship with that person next to you in church will determine the rest of it. Your friendship with your spouse is the catalyst for everything else to come, good or bad. I'll start with a story. We're gonna just talk about this the whole morning. This is not gonna be a traditional type of sermon. I'm gonna read you the text, and then I'm just gonna get hyper-practical today. But there was a guy in the Reformation, maybe you've heard of him. His name's Martin Luther. Any Lutherans in the crowd? You know why you were Lutheran? Because of Martin Luther, okay? Uh, Martin Luther was the man who, who took you know, Catholicism and said, we're gonna go a different direction. And in history, he's either loved or hated, but for everyone who's not practicing Catholicism currently, he's probably, as a Christian, he's probably beloved because he's such a staple of everything that we're about. And so most of you, with a show of hands, who's heard of Martin Luther, okay? There's some cool stuff about Martin Luther, and there's some really weird stuff about Martin Luther. And he doesn't stand alone. This time period in church history, there's some cool stuff about the people, and then there's some really weird stuff that you can't even relate to about how people saw the world. But he was the leader of the Reformation, and he had this amazing, amazing marriage, and it came with all sorts of controversy because when he separated from the Catholic Church, he did a lot of things that were controversial. One of them is he wrote this book called Monastic Vows, which he built the case for celibacy and priests being an invention of man. How popular do you think that belief was? Not popular at all, but that, that's one of the things that he's known for. And so he had this following of priests and nuns that kind of, you know, like had a Jerry Maguire moment. Who's with me? And they came with him and they, they put off their vows of celibacy and they started getting married. And so this is taking place hundreds of years ago and the plot thickens because he had a bunch of uh, nuns actually follow him and he was able to smuggle them out of a convent they were living in in 12 empty fish barrels. And one of those nuns was this lady known to him as Catherine von Bora. And she turned out to be a brash, and this is what he said about her. I would not recommend saying this about someone because just give away, he marries her. A brash, unattractive, and proud woman. And she eventually came up to Luther and said, you got me into this mess because here's what happens. Here's the backstory. She gets, she gets taken away in a fish barrel and then he's trying to find husbands for these women who have now you know, left the convent who have no real future. And she, she turns out to be a tough nut to crack and she turns out to be a tough person to find a husband for. And so she makes this statement because she's brash and she's proud. She says, Luther, you have done this to me if you can't find someone for me, then guess what? You're the lucky winner. That, that's, what, that's, that's true, right? Not how Ann and I met, but whatever. And history tells us that she wore him down and they finally got married. And then this is what he says. Also, put it in your notes, but never use it. When Luther was asked why he married Catherine, he said this, look at me. He said, to spite the devil. That's what he said about his bride. Marriage didn't start off like a fairy tale, but later we learned that he found her to be a quick-witted woman. And they would write correspondence, and they would spend time together. And then as the marriage progressed, as the friendship, which was the catalyst for the marriage, progressed, he ended up loving her with all of his heart. In fact, he had these terms of endearment for Catherine, like Lord Katie. You can imagine how she got that name. Dear Rib. 
my empress, my true love, my sweetheart, and my dear gift from God. In fact, early in Luther's writings about marriage, it was purely functional and actually came from Catholicism. There was this idea that still permeates that marriage and sexuality was something just merely to procreate and to fight off sexual temptation. That was his idea of marriage. But later, once he has this beautiful friendship and this intimate relationship with his bride, by the end of Luther's life, he would call Katie the greatest earthly gift of grace a man could have. That she was more than just a lover, she was a confidant, his companion, and his best friend. And so what I wanna propose to you today, as I give you this secret ingredient to why things have either thrived in your uh, love life and in your marriage specifically, just marriage actually, or why they have tanked, it's surrounding this principle, I promise you. It's surrounding this principle. Friendship is one of the most under-discussed, forgotten elements of marriage. And so there, there's a guy by the name of jo John Gottman who makes this statement. And you can nod if you think this is accurate, okay? Here it is. He says, marriage is not romance spiced with a little friendship. It's friendship spiced with a little romance. Tim Keller, have you guys heard of Tim Keller? Tim Keller is a brilliant, brilliant mind. He wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage that if you can get your hands on, could be very powering. He says that the determining factor in whether wives feel satisfied with sex, romance, and passion in their marriage is 70% based on the quality of her husband's friendship. And we're gonna get into this in a little while, but here's what is so counterintuitive to me that I would not have understood in my 20s and barely understood in my 30s that I am now saying amen to in my 40s, that when they interviewed men, they found the exact same, and the women weren't around, so it wasn't like they were copying the test, the multiple choice test. When they were asking, what is the most important thing in your marriage, the men also at a 70%, if you like statistics, that's a very high number, at a 70% rate said, the quality of my friendship with my spouse is the most important thing, and it's what drives everything else. And so here's what Ephesians 5, if you have your Bible, says about marriage. It's an umbrella text that gets used all the time. It is actually the text for marriage. We're gonna read it together. I wanna show you something, and I wanna apply it. But this is what Ephesians 5 says. Paul says this in verse 25, and if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of the same body, of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and here, here's the big statement. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is what it talks about in Genesis, that the two become one. It's this profound mystery that God puts together. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. How many of you have ever been to a wedding and heard that read? 
Right? You're like, I don't even think the people are actually Christians. I went to the wedding, but man, they, like everyone loves that text. That is the umbrella text. And here's my point as we start applying this. And you say, well, where, where do you get this idea of friendship? Because it's all about scripture, which I would agree. Where do you get this idea? Well, you can look to a couple of different things. You can look to Proverbs. You can look to Song of Solomon's and see the relationship that was erotic in the Old Testament, but also was built on friendship. But I think there's an idea in this that really trumps all of that, because here's my point. Where do we get this idea of friendship in the Bible when it comes to marriage? Here's what I would say to you. He says right in the text, the two shall become one flesh. And this idea of oneness in any relationship, right? Marriage is the absolute oneness relationship, but there are other relationships that are kind of oneness where you're pretty close. But this idea of oneness really shows us the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, But this idea of oneness demands friendship. It demands it. You can't be one with someone that you don't care about. You can't be one with someone that you know hardly anything about. This idea of oneness, it demands close, fused friendship. Adam looks at his wife and he likes what he sees. But when he makes this statement, This is the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. He is saying something way deeper than the fact that I like the way this girl looks. He's saying, I see a piece of my own soul when I look at her body. That God has given me this gift and he said it's good. It's good for man to not be alone. And when I see this type of oneness, God does this, not Adam. He says, man, I see literally a piece of my own soul in her. And I'm content in that And I am loving that. And that oneness doesn't just demand like a normal type of friendship. That oneness is this idea that both of us now are supernaturally infused and we have this common goal to serve Christ, to make him known, to one day stand before his throne, that both of us separately are gonna hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that person is the one person that I'm gonna walk through with through all of this stuff. And this oneness that I'm experiencing is an absolute catalyst for the friendship that God demands. Without this oneness, when it's not about that pursuit towards Christ, if you ever wonder why so many people get divorced, it's because that oneness isn't happening. Without that oneness, it becomes about something just superficial. You become business partners in a sense. I've told you guys the same thing year after year after year, but this is the research, this is the facts. The highest divorce rates, maybe you haven't memorized by now, are seven years. Does anyone know the other one? And 20, 21 years to be exact. Why is that? Well, practically speaking, there's a breakdown of oneness, and so it becomes functional, it becomes about children, it becomes about coexisting in your, in your jobs, and you become business partners in a sense, And then because what brings you the oneness is not friendship rooted in Christ, but what brings you the oneness is the things that you do together. When the things that you do together shift, you split. And so when you have these life transitions, maybe the kids are babies, you start having them, there's stressors, and and there's not oneness there, but it's practical, then you kind of at seven years carve out a different path. Or maybe you get into a career path in seven years and things start taking off, and now you've drifted away and you go a different direction. Or at 21 years, the kids are growing up fast or gone, and now you don't have the same partnership that you used to have because it was business and not oneness. 
And for those reasons, those are the two highest rates of divorce. Tim Keller says this. He says, when you look at your spouse, what you're supposed to see is Christ in them. And it's this idea that they're pursuing Christ and you're pursuing Christ and the oneness and the friendship exists and you're saying to yourself, I always knew that it could be this way. I got a glimpse of you once you see them in eternity. I got a glimpse of you on earth, but now I'm seeing you in your glorified state. I'm seeing what always was supposed to be and we had this same directional shift that we were going through with our whole lives and now I get to see you not in the same light, because now we're in heaven and now it truly is just a friendship and there's not physical intimacy, but I get to see you in this light and I look at you through the lens of Christ and I say, I always knew that it could be this way. The entire point of our life is to be one, to be bonded through this best friend relationship that's different than every other and it's to pursue Christ all the way until we meet him face to face. And so I just wanna spend a little time with you because I do think this is the secret ingredient. If things have not worked for you, I would challenge you to evaluate and be honest and say, is this the reason why? If you've never been married yet and you haven't had the most healthy examples or you don't really know what you're looking for or how to get there, then don't make a mistake this morning. Take some notes. I wanna just give you four practical things that have been true in my own life. And the first one is this. It is the biggest cliche of all cliches, but how many of you guys know cliches are cliches for a reason, right? Cliches are cliches for a reason. And so the first one, if you're not married yet, is this, marry your best friend. If you are single, what are you most looking for in a spouse? And before you answer the question, I I know this almost seems a bit narcissistic, but it's the way that I do things. Look at me when I tell you this, okay? Why do you always want me to look at you? Well, I just, I don't know, I'm insecure, I don't know. But I do, I do, I just wanna know that you're paying attention to this. Before you answer the question, single people, what are you most looking for in a spouse? Don't answer the question on a head level or on a, you know, just on a, well, I actually, you know, this is the textbook answer. Answer the question from this. What have you proven to be true in your life in your dating history? What does your dating history tell you you most value in the future spouse that you say you're after? Is that not a different question? Before you answer the question, just do a step back and go, if I was to be taken to court for what I most care about in dating relationships, what would be the evidence that would be mounting? Is there evidence to suggest that what I would say is actually not how I've acted and what I actually do shows me that I don't want what I say that I want? What does it look like to marry your best friend? Is there a disconnect between this idea and how you've actually operated. And so here's the next thing that I'm gonna tell you. What I want you to do right now when you're trying to imagine what this actually even means, because if it hasn't been modeled to you, you probably have no clue, is what I want you to do is I want you to now, anyone in here still in teen years or mid-20s, anybody in the first service, I know that that's a bit of an anomaly at 9.30 and you're more of you at 11, but is anyone not married yet in church this morning? All right, you're sitting next to each other, so maybe you're close. I want you to do this. I want you to fast forward in your mind and then come back and rewind. I want you to fast forward to a place that seems like a figment of your imagination that makes you incredibly, incredibly old 
and irrelevant, I want you to imagine your life in your 30s. Okay? Because that's just ancient. But if you've already been through your 30s like me and they look like something way back in the rearview mirror, I want you to track with this as well. Can you imagine your life in your 30s? I'm gonna read your mail. I'm gonna tell you what your life is gonna look like and you can just kind of give words of affirmation somewhat quietly in church if you think I'm on the right track and you're in your 30s already. But fast forward to what life is actually gonna look like for you. You're gonna have careers of some sort. Just, just to you know, crush your hopes and dreams, they really might not look like what you think they're gonna look like. like not everyone's gonna have the dream job. Some of you are just gonna have jobs. But you're gonna have a career where your boss is sometimes cool and sometimes you wanna strangle him or her. Your life's gonna look more practical than you realize. Your kids are gonna be fairly annoying and that's being modest. Alone time with this person that you chose for whatever reason is gonna become very difficult. And like we talked about last week in contentment, for most of us, money's gonna be tight, chasing's gonna be common, stress levels are gonna be high, and contemplating and self-actualizing, look at me young people, it's gonna be very low because you don't have time. You're not gonna be asking the proverbial question your whole life, who am I? And if you are, then you're probably annoying everyone around you because that's not what you do when you're older. You just work hard and raise your kids and you chase them around. That's gonna be for 90% of people that will get married in this life what it's gonna look like. And so what the question is now, you've gone forwards and here's what I want you to do. I want you to just rewind the VHS tape and you can ask your parents what that means. Rewind the VHS tape and now ask yourself the question, what type of person, if that is for all practical reasons, if it goes right, if it goes right, that's probably what your life's gonna look like. If it goes wrong, the basement at your parents' house is more practical. If it goes right and you're adulting like you're supposed to, that's probably gonna be what your life looks like. There's joy within it, but life is hard. What type of person do you want to spend that life with when you get older and you're balding. Try to imagine, you're like, I'm a woman. Did you just say I'm balding? I, I was talking to men, I guess, there. But working backwards from your end goal, I'm telling you, there is all sorts of joy within that craziness. All sorts of joy within that craziness. But if you don't heed my advice, if you don't pay attention to Martin Luther, the founder of all Protestantism, Protestantism, whatever you're saying, the Protestant movement, if you don't heed this advice, I promise you, you are in for it. Marry your best friend. I, I wanna just drive this home. I had a lunch with a guy that was so much cooler than me last week. And I know you can't even imagine that, but just try, okay? I was at my, my spot, I was at Mazatlan's, and I became friends with this guy who lives in town that I think a lot of people don't even know we have this in Aberdeen. Uh, he, he has a Super Bowl ring. In, in the early 2000s, he played in the NFL, for several years, and he won the Super Bowl. And so, uh, obviously, I was way out of my league, but uh, just as a show of hands, how, how many of you think I had a lot in common with him? I'm actually being serious. I had a lot in common with him, besides the athleticism being hair different. We are almost the same age, and we were talking, and I was actually using him, he's becoming a friend, as therapy in my own life, as someone who's just like, you know, I'm bouncing things off of, this is what I'm struggling with, he's like, this is what I'm you know, struggling with as well. And I'm, being all, just, I'm driving home this point of marrying your best friend. I actually had a lot in common with him. Never played football in my whole life. My mom wouldn't let me. She said I was too tough. I'd hurt the other kids. 
Never played a day in my life, but I had a lot in common with him, and, and here's why. It's not because of any anomaly. It's because when you're at the same life stage that he's at and when I'm at and when you're at, when you're you know, getting out of your 30s into your 40s, raising high schoolers, wondering when the craziness is ever gonna stop, I promise you this, you have a lot in common with everyone around you because your life, even if you won a Super Bowl, is incredibly mundane. It's day to day. You know, my, my son's inching towards 17, his daughter's not too far behind herself, and she's in high school. He actually told me, I don't have permission to say it, but I think it's hilarious, and hopefully he won't get mad. I was telling him how, you know, like as a dad, your kids start thinking you're cool. This guy won the, won the Super Bowl. He said, yeah, my daughter's in high school now, or about to be, and she doesn't even think I'm cool when I won the Super Bowl. And man, that was just like a meal ticket for me to feel way better about myself. In the meal time, his wife calls, says, bring me home some Mexican food. After the meal, he went home and he went back to work and he, you know, he's an engineer, so he had these day-to-day -day tasks that he was accomplishing himself and uh, he was raising kids and, and he was trying to make it work and he's trying to get to the YMCA to stay in shape. My, my, my point is this, that no one is an exempt and if you want to do this right, you need to fast forward because even a guy that won the Super Bowl knows what I'm talking about, that life gets mundane, that life gets difficult, the challenges get infinite, the money gets tight, and the stressors get high, and my point is this, if you do not commit to finding someone with character and looking to someone to be your best friend, then when you get to that stage, you're cooked. Anyone in that stage or been basted? Nod your head if I'm right. Leave if I'm wrong, okay? Marry your best friend because if that person in these stages of life can't make you laugh and connect with you, I promise you, when it gets to be practical, you will struggle. I read a study on infatuation this last week, knowing that I'm gonna talk about this. What do you think the longest rates of infatuation are that are researched? Psychologists have researched infatuation and found that its longest peak its longest peak, they cannot find a peak longer than this peak, is 18 months. 18 months. A guy by the name of Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Search. And he started doing a longitudinal study on here's how people pick spouses, you know, back in the 60s, and here's how they pick spouses today. And he referenced a study in 1967 of college women and found that 76% would marry a man if they had traits they were looking for, even if they didn't initially have romantic feelings towards them. And then 30 years later, 1997, 91% of college females said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And what I'm saying is obviously you should be attracted to the person you want to spend the rest of your life with, but that real friendship should be the foundation for that attraction. Here's the second thing. Just real quick, friendship is a significant need for men and women. And I already told you that, but I want to make sure you get it down. This is not, and it's counterintuitive to me, it's not something I would have understood when I was younger. This is not just a female issue. That 70% of women say something, that this is the most important thing, but then when men are pulled aside and actually done an honest inventory and had some years of marriage under their belt, they said the exact same thing about that being a top priority in their life. Here's the third thing, write this down. Your spouse 
is the only friend, this is something that has really, really been on my heart. Your spouse is the only friend that will be with you through every season of life. And here's why I bring it up. Ann and I have got 21 years together, 20 years of marriage this this summer. And I was thinking about this as a catalyst. I talked to Ann about this before I brought this up publicly. And I want you to think of your own life 10 years ago. I want you to think about everyone that you were around. And then the next statement is this. How many of those people are still around in the same way that they were 10 years ago? And I would venture to say that less than 25% of you would have the same close people in your life just 10 years ago, even if you're at a different stage of life where you're in the legacy mode. Things are constantly shifting, are they not? Things are constantly shifting where you live this life, and and the reason I bring it up at this stage of my life, I'll get to that in a second, is because of this child rearing process, but people in your life 10 years ago, it's not that you don't know them anymore, but things shift, don't they? I mean, these are people that you used to run around with doing everything together when your kids are little, and you go to the, the mommy groups on Mondays, or, or you know, when your kids were in high school, and then you traveled around to all these sporting events, and there's these seasons of life for people in your life, or maybe when you were single in college, and you have these college buddies that we talk to maybe once every six months, if that, or maybe you don't talk to them at all anymore, or they were in your wedding party, and you haven't talked to them in years and years and years, and that doesn't mean that you're a bad friend necessarily, that's just how life works but your spouse is different, the two become one. You have to invest in this relationship at a greater level because it is the only relationship that will be with you if it's done right for every season of life, which makes this friendship thing and choosing a partner based on that so incredibly important. When the kids were little, you know, we met in college and we had this type of relationship that grew out of that and two weeks into it, I told her I wanted to marry her. And I I would just say that most of us should make that same decision. That was a joke. And we had our pre-kid stage. We had our little kid stage. We had our big kid stage. We're still in that, and we're inching towards the young adult stage, the empty nest stage, and the end of life stage. And Anne was the one who said this to me. She said, this relationship is more important to me because what I've come to understand 20 years in is it's the only one that's gonna be there. And so I want to challenge you with that. Invest in the relationship with your spouse. The two become one. There is only one relationship like that. It's the only one that God designed where it is there forever till death do you part. And the closer is this. The reason this is so incredibly important is that the friendship that you possess allows for vulnerability which then allows for real intimacy. This friendship, where it's the best friend, best friends have one common thread. There's vulnerability. If they're not vulnerable, they're not your best friend. This relationship allows for vulnerability, which then will lead to real intimacy. And I wrote this down the other day, and I want you to write it down, you don't really love someone until you know what makes them unlovable and then you choose to love them anyways. 
if you don't have that type of relationship, you're not in love, you're in infatuation. And you've got 18 months, so use them wisely. You don't really love someone until you know what makes them unlovable and you choose to love them anyway because having a real friendship is going to be the catalyst for being more than friends. When people come to meet with me over the years and they have this issue and so so what I've done is I've gotten smarter and before I meet with them, I wanna know why they wanna meet. But they come to me with two core issues when it's regarding intimacy and I think this is worth noting and I think you wanna know this. When they say they have intimacy issues, they are saying one of two things. They're saying, I don't trust them, and it's affecting our intimacy, and here's kind of the case as to why I don't trust them, or they're saying we are living separate lives. Almost every time, those are the two accusations. And I wanna tell you this again, friendship allows for vulnerability, which allows for real intimacy, and if you don't understand that, you're gonna have a superficial relationship that's built on things And it looks more like a business partnership, and when those things shift, it's gonna run dry. But it's within that vulnerability that has that intimacy that so many people say that they want, and if you don't understand that, then there's gonna be this season of life where it starts evaporating and you don't know why, but it's because it's a business partnership and there's no real vulnerability. And so here's where I close it out and I get incredibly personal. Are you ready? I'm gonna let you read my mail. And she'll be here in a little bit. Ann said this thing to me the other day. She doesn't know I, I'm going to say it to a few people, but I was, I was sitting with her. We were reflecting, and she looked at me, and I thought she was going to say something really nice, really heartwarming. And she looked me in the eyes. Are you looking me in the eyes? She said, Rodney. You are needy. That's what she said. She goes, Rodney, you are needy. And then she took it a step further. And so I want you to look at me again so you can just get some idea of how this works. She says, you are needy. It's been 20 plus years. You are needy and you are annoying. You always, and here's my therapy with you, because I can't have therapy individually with each of you, I don't have time, this is something that we can all take home, but here's what she said this, she said, then said this to me, she said this, she says, you always wanna talk about your feelings. You always wanna talk about your feelings. She said, sometimes I don't want to, I just wanna hang out. She said, you, you have this annoying ability that people probably think it's great publicly, but it's annoying privately. This is one of our discussions, not a fight, it was a discussion. She said, you have this annoying ability to take anything and then make it like a, a hundred out of a hundred important. And she said, you can be so intense and sometimes I just wanna watch a movie and talk about my day. And, and, and I said to her, I said, I, I can't really change that. I can temper that, but that's how I'm wired. And, and I tell you that to then say this, We have this really vulnerable, honest relationship, and I know it sounds cliche, but I'm telling you the the God's honest truth, this woman who I annoy is my absolute best friend. Marked by her ability to tell me off and marked by my ability to fight back. 
marked by her ability to be transparent and my ability to sulk and feel sorry for myself and just walk in that with her and go, yes, I'm needy, it's been 20 years. And I'm not gonna change, but sometimes you're really annoying too. And back and forth it went. And I'm, I'm not trying to really be funny here. I'm trying to give you an example of what this looks like. Real friendship allows, being the best friend allows for vulnerability, which then leads to intimacy. There is nothing in my life this woman doesn't know. And she's the only person I can say that about. Only person. Real intimacy is built on vulnerability and the foundation for it is real, authentic friendship. 20 plus years in, one thing I've always done is I found her place of employment. Found it like I didn't know, right? <laughs> I found it and I, I go hang out with her to wherever she works. So she worked at this place called Tony's Gym when we were in college on Main Street, doesn't exist anymore. I would go there and then I'd work out and we'd just talk and joke around. She worked at Volunteers of America for a little while and I would go there and I think I was the only guy that would go hang out with their wife for a little bit and have lunch with them at work. And it was mostly women that worked with her. And then she started subbing and I couldn't really do it then. But at Aberdeen Christian, I love that place because they don't mind that when her kids are at lunch in fourth grade, I go in there and I have my lunch with her too sometimes. Because this is my best friend. Marry your best friend. Marry someone who actually enjoys hanging out with you. And I can promise you this, you will, you will cover over a multitude of issues. The gospel is this, that there is only one friend greater than your potential spouse or your current spouse, and that friend is Jesus Christ, and he puts this intimacy on display. He shows us what it looks like to have a friend that's closer than a brother. He shows us what it looks like to have a best friend who is willing to sacrifice everything, even his own life, to lay it down. And Ephesians talks about that. That's what husbands should do for their wives, to lay his own life down in our place, going to a cross, dying for our sins, rising from death so that we can have life. And he wants this intimate, personal relationship with us that he's our best friend. And from that love from him flows this ability to have vulnerability and have true intimacy with our spouse and to put the gospel on display because it's a metaphor of our gospel relationship with Christ and for him to lay his own life down and to be best friends with us so that then we can have this intimate, personal, best friend relationship with our spouse. If I could tell you one thing before I go meet Jesus and it's regarding marriage, I wanna challenge you and just close with it one more time. If you don't get this right, if you don't get this right, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. If you don't get this right, you will not get the rest of it right, I promise you. 2022, putting the gospel on display, new life being a catalyst for the gospel going forward in Aberdeen and Peru, wherever, you have to take an inward focus. What are the main bones and the skeleton of my marriage? Am I getting this right? Am I loving my spouse? Is that person my best friend? Am I making that priority? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. And God, as a pastor, my prayer for, for these people is that we would look different than the world. That we would look different than the rest of the world. That our divorce rates would be lower. In fact, our divorce rates would be non-existent. 
because we value real intimacy that's rooted in a relationship with you. And that we love our spouse like you love us. And that we would truly seek and pursue this idea of friendship in the covenant. Help us to look differently. We pray for the young people that still aren't married. Uh, that they would have taken at least mental notes today. That they would do a, a real inventory of their own life. The decisions that they're going to make. Things that have or have not been modeled to them in their own life. And that they would say, you know what? With Christ, it doesn't matter what my past looks like. I can have a different future in him, and I'm going to take these things to heart, and I'm going to pursue the better relationship. Jesus, we pray these things in your precious and holy name. And everybody said, amen.